0: makes for better criticism and better reading. You don't want to be reading the same voice and from the same sociological perspective every time. Like, I would so much rather hear from all different kinds of people with all different kinds of taste. Um, I think the whole objective music critic idea is a myth and, and kind of dangerous.
1: You're listening to It's All Dead, a podcast about the music we love and why we love it. I'm Kyle Hawk. All right. Welcome to It's All Dead. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Kyle Hawk, Editor-in-Chief at itsalldead.com. It is a Friday afternoon. We are officially into November now. And uh, it's November 2nd. Today is the official five-year anniversary of It's All Dead. And I hope you all had a chance to check out the last podcast. We kind of relived some uh, memories and uh, fun and weird things from the past five years. But um, again, thanks to everybody for following along with us uh, for that long. It's been a pleasure and we are excited to keep doing this thing that we are doing. So um, and that thing starts today with a new podcast. And, you know, in doing this podcast, for all the people that we have come on, uh, some of my my favorite ones that we do are when I get to talk with other writers, um, other thinkers in the the music space. And kind of get their perspective and their story. And and today's going to be a really, uh, really exciting conversation as I am joined by Lindsay Zolads, who's a music and pop culture critic currently writing for The Ringer. Uh, She's also been a writer for uh, New York Mag, Pitchfork, Slate, and many other outlets. Uh, She's a a seasoned journalism vet. She's got an incredible knack for capturing the cultural importance and impact of the music that she writes about. And of course, if you uh, follow us at It's All Dead, you know that that is something that is right up our alley. So Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your Friday to come on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for that great intro and happy anniversary also.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. So you're on our podcast today, and I know you've been doing some appearances on uh, Micah Peters' podcast at The Ringer, uh, which of course has more podcasts than anybody can count at this point. When when does the Lindsay Zolads podcast uh, get started?
0: I think they are over capacity for podcasts right now. We do have a lot of them, uh, but I'm I'm sort of enjoying now just making guest appearances on other ones and. Um, having other people do all the work (laughs) yeah of course that's 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 the way to do it writing
1: but um yeah it's been fun cool well we are going to talk about your writing today also kind of want to get your take on a few different things around music uh in 2018 and um some things that are happening now but before we get into all that I kind of want to go back to the beginning and learn a little bit you know one of the things I enjoy about your writing is sometimes you'll kind of drop little breadcrumbs that give us a little bit of uh history of your own love of music um but I I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about you know the, the music that you loved growing up and I guess most importantly how that music impacted your decision and your path uh in becoming a writer
0: yeah, that's a great question. I mean, my, my very first favorite song when I was like three years old that, that I can remember was Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Mm. So that did not, uh, thankfully really shape my aesthetic, but there <laughs> are like family, family videos of me like making up my own words to it. And so it yeah. was like pretty early on that yeah. I was obsessed with music. Um, but I really, I think my kind of understanding um, and taste in a lot of things I've like most people like really congealed in high school and I was really into at that time sort of invested in the punk and emo scene both mm-hmm. locally in my town I'm from New Jersey and there was kind of a, a an uptick in the whole kind of kicking back Sundays days the day brand new right. era like that was my yeah. high school years and I was really into a lot of those bands, and then had friends that were in bands, you know, kind of within that tradition, so I was very tuned into that scene, um, and, you know, was listening to pop music, and kind of alternative rock radio, and hip-hop, and, you know, everything. It was also sort of the the early Napster era. I guess that was, like, early high school for me, and the whole torrenting Mm -hmm. wave, so I was a frequent downloader on the dialogue sites and right. and just kind of the very early stages of when there wasn't the kind of access to music we have today, but it was becoming easier to find sort of obscure things. It just took forever to download them because yep. the internet was not fast in those days. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think the just kind of coming of age in a punk scene and with that wave of emo in particular, I mean it was very male, and it was really I, a lot of that music I've written about this a little bit when I kind of go back is like outright misogynist in in some of the uh-huh. worst cases that it's yeah. all you know blaming this operatic angst on a girl breaking someone's heart and right. you know I was right there with it. I kind of my my quote unquote feminist awakening came a little bit later because I think I also um was coming of age in kind of a dead space for feminism. It's, it, I think sure. there's a lot more opportunities to learn about stuff like that. And just people seem more fluent in talking about gender politics when they're younger. Like if you think of the website Rookie and things like that, like that very much did not exist when I was a teenager. And I was yeah. a little late for like the Riot Girl stuff. So I was really consuming a lot of this music that was in its own way kind of antagonistic towards me as a female Mm -hmm. listener. And I think a lot of my criticism that I've written is like untangling that a little bit and coming to terms with the fact that I don't hate that music now. I grew up with it and I still, Mm -hmm. you know, there it was really formative for me. I think some of it is aged better than others, but it's it's been interesting to kind of go back as a critic and like with a critical eye um, and, and just interrogate what was going on there and what sort of cultural ideas we were all being fed at that time.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, it's all dead was kind of born uh, around, you know, this, our, you know, shared love of the, you know, punk and emo scene, I guess, for lack of a, a better term. And of course, just like so many other people, our past few years have been spent taking steps back and trying to deconstruct all of it and just kind of this collective realization of how, um, yeah, I guess how kind of fucked up a lot of it was in, in so many ways. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fascinating to see so many different people You know, be working through all of those things, and obviously, you know, in the way you write, and um, you certainly do an incredible job of kind of examining some of that. And of course, we'll we'll get into that in a little bit uh, more detail here momentarily. So it sounds like you know some of that early love for music just kind of led to that natural, like, you know, wanting to to write about it or you know have some sort of involvement in it in that way. Is that kind of like how that came about? Of like, this is this is kind of why and, and how I got started in, in critiquing this.
0: Yeah, I was always, always a writer, always really, in, you know, even before um, I had anything published, I would like make little magazines when I was like eight years old and make my yeah. parents take me to Staples to have them bound. Like they're very enabling. Um, yeah. But I always, you know, kind of had that urge to express myself in writing and, Uh, And then probably from the age of like 10 or 11, really kind of had this deep music fandom. And they didn't, those two things really didn't come together for me until a little bit later. I know I have friends who are music critics now that just knew since they were like 14, that that's what they wanted to do and took certain steps towards making that dream possible. And that was really, not something on my radar at all. I now when I look back, I I was like writing in my diary about the Weezer concert I went to or something and <laughs> yeah. and there's like little glimmers of it there. I found a a review that I wrote of the nineteen ninety seven Grammys when I was eleven years old. was oh, just wow. like being really mad <laughs> that no doubt came <laughs> with any Grammys which still they probably should have that year. Um yeah. but so when I look back, they're like little kind of breadcrumbs. Uh, but I didn't really consciously try to do this until the year after I graduated college and was kind of in one of those, what the hell am I going to do with my life? <laughs> moments right. That you go in, um, in your early 20s. and So that was kind of when it came together for me. I was really involved in my college radio station too. I was the general manager. I went to college at american University in washington d c okay. so I was like doing a lot of writing at that time and then sort of really deep in the local music scene there and just the the college radio world and and that whole thing um and then it just it came together after not long after,
1: yeah. And so obviously, you know, everyone that writes knows that, you know, as time passes, it's it's a grind and there are ups and downs with it in terms of just your own creativity. What do you love about writing? Like what what keeps you going even in those moments where it's like I've I can't get it out right now, but I I know I have to and I know I'm going to what is it about um about writing for you?
0: Huh, that's really like it's tough to put into words I think even though the whole job of what I do is putting things into words but (laughs) um I just I think from like I said from a really early age I just had as an interest in doing it and kind of an urge to to write and it's something I still do in my spare time like if i I try to be as prolific a journaler as possible. It's, I've been a little lax in recent years, but I think, um, yeah, it just I'm <clears throat> I'm kind of committed at this point to. I feel like this is what I'm doing, and I'm lucky enough that I get to do it for a job, which is sort of insane to me. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it just I think it comes from a very deep place that. If it wasn't there, I think sometimes my life would be easier. If I, because it is, i I'm not the first person to say this, but I, a lot of writers say it's like having homework every day of your life for the right. rest of your <laughs> life. When you And I don't know if that's something a lot of people would choose, but I, I feel very committed on this wild path of eternal homework.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> um, you know. Of course, most people can talk about their profession in such a way as to say, oh, you know, this is so much different now than it was when we were growing up or whatever. But, you know, journalism is something that, Uh, has evolved extremely rapidly, um, especially for people that want to be, for example, a a music critic. I mean, what have you seen evolve the most in recent years? What's changed? I mean, because you've written at multiple different places now. And what have you seen as as you've kind of gone along on your journey that's changed in in the uh, landscape of music journalism?
0: Yeah, so I think probably my first major stuff was published around 2011 so i guess i've been at it for like seven years which in other industries wouldn't be a long time but it feels like a lifetime in just digital journalism because i was Mm -hmm. pretty i did some early stuff for the washington city paper when i was still in dc but it was largely most of my career has been if not only online like stuff that you can access on the internet um So I've seen a lot of changes. I kind of came out of the blogging world. I feel like already no one has blogs anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's like not, there was a moment maybe six or eight years ago when that was kind of what you did, especially if you were an aspiring writer, you started a blog and hoped that someone important would take notice of it. And that is kind of how things happened for me. I was, Collaborating with some friends on a music bar just after we graduated and couldn't find good jobs. And we right. this is 2009 too. I graduated into like the worst recession year um, with an English major, so that was yeah. <laughs> a little rough for a moment. Um, but I really had this urge to just keep writing. I missed that creative and intellectual outlet that I had in college and. So I had a lot of other friends that were in that same boat from college, and that I knew from the radio station. So we started a music blog, and then I used some of those clips to start writing for um, Coke Machine Glow, which is a Canadian-based, now sadly defunct, essentially, I think a webzine was the word
1: we were using for
0: it. But it was that was the thing once too. Um, So and then I did start with. A close friend of mine and roommate at the time, we just started like a feminist pop culture blog too called Cannonball that was really fun to run. Um, We just called ourselves the editors and that was kind of how I learned to edit. Um, It was just creating that people would send submissions of things in so it was really uh, that whole kind of self-started blog, world. I I've, I've obviously people still have blogs, but it's not nearly as populated that world as it as it was sure. when I was getting started. And it was a way, I think, first of all, to like get out probably some bad writing that I'm glad was not published on a larger platform. Uh yeah. this is when I was like twenty two to twenty-four. Uh so, but it was really good training and I think also I do really value, value those experiences of when I wasn't writing for money or when I wasn't writing to like earn a living because I was doing it purely out of just a love for doing it. Um, it, like I couldn't not do it, which is yeah. the only reason to write a blog post after working like a desk job all day and come home and just bang this thing out in my free time. Um, so yeah, I think the disappearance of kind of the blog stuff and really the rise of like Twitter and which existed when I was starting out, but it's, it wasn't the kind of thing where you would, if you were an aspiring writer trying to get your stuff out there, I feel like it's largely like Twitter threads now (laughs) instead of Mm -hmm. blog posts and the, the formats have been shrinking and shrinking. Um. So, and even like Tumblr is not really what it once was, but I, a lot of my early writing, um, even like when I was getting published at Pitchfork, but was just kind of having these other random thoughts on the side, I would put them on my Tumblr and feel like that's not as vibrant a community anymore. And maybe I've just like aged out of it because <laughs> of my stories yeah. now, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just like the platforms, Change and then that in turn changes the content and the form of what people are writing. And I do kind of miss the blogging days a little bit. It felt slightly weirder than sure, you know. Yeah, than the other thing. And also, Twitter is just deeply depressing now. Right? As yeah, of most course. social media. This is, you know, this is all during the Obama era. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I get well, too political about it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like kind of your trajectory has followed that of the evolution of online journalism, which is really interesting because now at The Ringer, which is a lot like Grantland was in 2011-2012, where it was kind of the epicenter of the change happening in terms of what it means to write on the internet, The Ringer kind of exemplifies that in a lot of ways now in 2018. Um, and it, it seems to me that it kind of allows its writing staff to explore the culture around the topics they cover. So when I read an article by you about music, I'm not just reading like an album review. I'm reading kind of the the cultural surroundings of a moment that also happens to coincide with your writing about this artist or this album. Um, is that is that something, is, for one, is, is that a, a fair observation? And two, if so, is that something that's kind of been exciting for you to explore?
0: Yeah, I definitely think that's fair to say. I don't know that... I guess what I'm writing about music now is, like, technically reviews still, but not always. It's not always... I think the pieces that I've done, even if they're pegged to a new album coming out, like I wrote something about Robin a couple... Or was it last week? Yeah, last Mm -hmm. week, I guess, that that record came out. And, you know, I with my piece, I think like probably two thirds of it was about her career leading up to this new album. And then the last third was about the new album. And that is kind of fun to do more comprehensive pieces and not, not have to, you know, pin it down to like, is this good or bad? Or is this an eight or a six or whatever? Um, It's, you know, I still think there's a value to that kind of judgment as well but i think something that i do really like the idea of providing context these days in a time when it feels like so many things are taken out of context on the internet and just sort of the the quickest and shortest and most you know direct in some ways take is what rises to the top like i i do think in a lot of the writing i've done about music in for the ringer in particular, like I want to to just fill in that context a little bit and give a sense of history, give a sense of what else is going on in the landscape and where this artist or this record fits in. And um, I think part of it too is just I, in my time at Pitchfork and when I was at New York Mag, I've so many like straight up album reviews in my life that mm-hmm. I think I probably was getting a little bit bored with the format or. was just feeling burnt out on it so i do think what i'm doing there is like or at the ringer is slightly different and maybe that's just out of my own antsiness to to do something a little bit different too
1: yeah and i was going to ask what that transition was like because you know when i go to pitchfork i know exactly what i'm going there for i'm going to get a a a number down to the decimal point and very specific kind of review about an album that just came out that I'm interested in. Whereas if I go to the ringer, I'm kind of experiencing something a a little bit broader um, and a little bit deeper. And so it it sounds like for you, that transition was actually an easy thing just because of the burnout from the album review angle. This kind of allowed you to explore that, but from a different approach.
0: Yeah, it definitely was fun to do the whole, like, big Pitchfork review stuff, too, though, and there was, like, the time that I was there, maybe 2011 to 2014, and uh, I kind of worked my way up to having, like, the bigger Best New Music reviews or the A-flat reviews, Um, and it was exciting to have that kind of power, I guess, that people do really take into account what Pitchfork is going to say about an album, they often get mad and don't <laughs> agree yeah. with you, but um, it was interesting because I don't. I think it's like I don't really think in the numbers anymore. I when I'm mm-hmm. writing a piece for the ringer, I'm not thinking, oh, this is an eight point seven or or what have you. But I'm sure that's how my brain worked a little bit in the years that I was writing for yeah. pitchfork because it it kind of you write to that number a little bit. Um, but I found it liberating but also it's it was fun <laughs> to mm-hmm. to sort of have that power and um you know, start the argument about the reception of something.
1: But Yeah. You you know, that's it's an interesting thing because the number does hold so much power and of course we, we give our album reviews a, a number as well, but it's the the thing about being a writer is like you're assigning this sort of a, a number to something, but really what you're saying is in the words. And so like getting people mm-hmm. to like see past the number to what you're trying to explain or express about the album is um, one of the great challenges, I think, of being a writer that, you know, reviews music. So it's uh, it's a very interesting thing. Um, now as you've written at all these different places and have brushed shoulders with so many great writers, I mean, as a writer, one, that's really cool because like, wow, here's all these great writers and I can learn from them. On the other hand, it's like, oh my gosh, there's all these great writers around. I'm wondering like, as you have grown as a writer, where have you drawn inspiration from and what's kind of impacted you to like help you grow and, and be a better writer?
0: Yeah, I I do look a lot to just older criticism, older music criticism. I read a lot of film criticism too. I think my all-time favorite music critic is Ellen Willis, who was mm-hmm. the first pop music critic at The New Yorker and was just a really amazing feminist thinker and countercultural critic. Uh, and I, whenever I'm feeling kind of, low on inspo i will go to one of her collections and and also kind of i i think it's interesting to think about um you know i'm not necessarily writing because i believe that someone's going to read this like 30 years from now or something that would be awesome if that happened to like one of my pieces but at the same time i think it's it's important to kind of think in that long game and think in that context which has become even harder with you know the conversation being about what does everyone outreach have on twitter today or what you know these things tend to feel so small even like a week later so yeah. i think reading older music criticism older film criticism i'm a huge fan of pauline kale you know, who was legendary film critic at the new yorker and i i like reading older stuff just to kind of put it in perspective of you know what you're kind of you have to think that way like even if you're not writing for posterity you have to write to your moment for sure but um yeah i think there the internet has kind of exacerbated this tendency to think you know everything happening either has to be the most superlative thing yeah. or that everyone's going to remember this forever and, it's it's not true. <laughs> There's definitely yeah. some artists like in Ellen Willis's collection of criticism, which I love so much, that she's writing about some artists that like do not stand the test of time and I don't really know what she's talking about in those references, but mm. that I think it just really helps put it in perspective.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, in terms of the right now, I mean, in 2018, I feel like you've been on fire with a lot of the stuff that you've put out on The Ringer, particularly not an, uh, another Women in Rock article I thought was one of the best things the site has published this year. You also had some really great articles on Cardi B, Ariana Grande. I love the Lauren Hill piece and the way that kind of looked back and you, just of how complicated it is to look back on 20 years of the miseducation of Lauryn Hill and how beautiful that album still is and amidst all of that. There's just a lot of really great pieces you've done. And obviously, writing from this perspective of, you know, women in music is not new to you. And we brought up earlier, I mean, when we started kind of examining the the scene or the, you know, punk scene, for, again, lack of a better... T- I've All these years, and I've still never figured out the right thing to call it every time I start saying it. I feel stupid, but <laughs> examining, like, oh, my gosh, like, this scene, like, totally failed women and realizing, like, no, like, this is, like, an institutional failure across the music industry, and of course, so many other areas. But in all of your writing, and especially some of the stuff that you've been doing this year, what have you identified as, I guess, some of the most crucial things that need to change in an industry that has failed women for so long?
0: Yeah, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) I think (laughs) a lot needs to change. I do think a lot, at least on the criticism end and the, the music writing end, I feel like in the seven or so years I've been doing this, I've seen a huge change in how many women are writing for prominent publications and and mm-hmm. reviewing things. Um when I was at Pitchfork and when I started there, I was one of very, very few female voices. Um yeah. and I think they've done a lot to sort of correct that imbalance. And I think a lot of other places have become a lot more conscious of that too, because it makes for better criticism and better reading you don't want to be reading the same voice and from the same sociological perspective every time like I would so much rather hear from all different kinds of people with all different kinds of tastes Um, I think the whole kind of objective music critic idea is a myth and and kind of dangerous to you know homogenizing what people listen to but I do think I mean, there's a lot happening right now in terms of female artists, particularly in the kind of tier of like indie rock, uh, sort of just below the mainstream, which was what I was writing about in that, that another women in rock piece. I'm um, thinking about Mitski, who's had such an awesome year, and Snail Mail, Soccer Mommy, all these artists that are young and. Singing from their perspective, writing from their perspective, um, as a woman in particular, and that again, I I don't think that waves existed when I was the age that I wish that it had. When I was, you know, listening to all these men sing about how women were awful. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I'm really heartened by the idea that there are, you know, teenage girls listening to Mitski and and mm-hmm. feeling represented in a way that I really did not when I was that age. I think I think there is just a lot of interesting music being made by women that people are paying more attention to now. I do think it when you go up to sort of the pop music tier, it gets more complicated because there's a lot more, you know, corporate oversight in that tier yeah. and there's just all, a whole host of other systemic issues as to why like the billboard charts right now are, are really like aside from cardi b's success and a few other outliers it's a very male time on the radio right now and, and there's a lot of a lot of reasons why that's kind of ingrained in the way people are listening but yeah i i'm seeing some change i would love more i think we're gonna progress there but it has been exciting to be covering all of this at a time when I do feel like there has been change, there has been major progress that I can chart over just the the relatively short amount of time that I've been doing this. So that, that does feel exciting.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, one of the things I've been trying to, or we've talked about a lot on this podcast for the past couple of years, is trying to identify like these I guess what I've called like what would be the American idiot moment of this current administration and kind of come to the re- realization that we don't really need it just because like, it's so obvious to everyone, <laughs> like what a, what a mess this is. So maybe we don't need that, but I'm wondering, you know, as you've written about so much pop music uh, over the past year, like have you noticed how this current climate has impacted pop music at large? Is there anything that sticks out to you where you can feel you know, that, that shift happening or that tone making some sort of change?
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I think what a lot of the past two years has been about are, are realizing the limitations of celebrity heroes, right? Like, yeah. we, I think we're looking to, you know, all the stuff that went on with Kanye was a, a perfect example of that. And, mm-hmm. and whether you not, whether or not you agreed with, you know, sort of the pro-Trump politics he was espousing, he, you know, tweeted this week that he walked that back and was like, I'm getting out of politics. I'm just gonna be creative. And that almost pissed me off just as much that it yes. it was in bad faith or, or that he could kind of just check out of that conversation when so many people do not have that luxury. Right. So I think if anything... I, I see, you know, I think there are a lot of ways in which the entertainment industry is responding to all this, that music and musicians are using their platforms. But I think we're also realizing that those platforms aren't everything. Those people aren't everything. And we have to, we have to do a lot of this work ourselves too. Yeah. And, and that sometimes you're going to be better than your heroes and, and be more politically motivated them, than them too. So yeah, yeah, I think it's just it's different. It's a weird time, for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, no question. And that that's a really great way of putting it too of like it's not looking at it as somebody else's responsibility to speak this, you know, large mass message, but really our own personal responsibility to, you know, to continue to speak that message daily in our own lives. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, certainly we are in a time of unpacking all these things about artists that we love. And as somebody who has long been a Kanye fan, certainly like many this year has been a very uh, not great one in in terms of like trying to figure out like how you think, talk uh, about the artists you love and the art that they've made in the midst of of things like this. It's a, uh, it's not a fun or an easy thing, but, um, certainly, certainly been interesting. Um, and speaking of this year, we are, you know, coming up on the end of 2018. And, uh, of course our site, like every other site loves to make lists at the end of the year. And I, uh, am one who's spoken many times at how silly, um, these things are. But I just love making lists. I can't. I can't it's help fun. it. No matter how <laughs> dumb I know it is. I love doing it. Um, what have been some of your favorite albums this year? And in asking that, how do you define what makes the the best album of a given year when it comes to this time? And you start thinking about some of these things.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely. This is kind of the time of year when I'm going back over things that I may have missed or stuff that and I that gets crazier every year because every year there's more and more music out there and more ways to listen to it so it can feel pretty overwhelming so I definitely think there's quite a few records that I wanted to listen to and found it interesting to me and then I just completely lost the time so I especially like November, October I'm trying to go back and and, um, and just immerse in that. But I do. I keep a little notebook. I've been doing this this year, where when I really love a record and feel like it's it's gonna have some sort of spot on a year-end thing or or just yeah. something that I want to declare my love for, I write it down in my notebook. So that's I awesome. have a little rolling list I've been keeping. Um, but yeah, I th- I'm still figuring out what that's gonna look like. But a few things. They come to mind. I know I wrote about this a bit in that Women in Nazis, but I love this record by the band Camp Cope called How to Socialize and How to Make Friends. Yeah. It is something I've listened to probably more than almost anything else this year. It really and it does channel a lot of what we've been talking about about the frustrations of women in our society and finally being heard for all these frustrations that have gone that has been suffered in silence for a long time it's it's really about that in some ways but it's just about daily life as a person too and and feelings yeah. and all these things and they have a great front man front man see it's so ingrained in me <laughs> <laughs> with them. um they have a great front woman georgia mack who just has this incredible voice and a real power behind and passion behind when she's singing. So I'm still obsessed with that record, even though it came out very early this year. I also really loved uh, the U.S. Girls record. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that one this year, but that was like, I think it came out in like February. So it's it's a while back. I think when I was looking through it, I was like, whoa, this came out this year. But just really sort of, um, I would say challenging pop music. Like, I think it is a record that, Spoke to the political reality of this year and, and kind of is hiding these really subversive sentiments in really catchy poppy choruses that you don't realize quite what she's saying until you're like already singing along and then you're like, whoa. So yeah. I think that that record has felt really um, pretty quintessentially 2018 to me.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, one of the things I was going to ask about of you know, we write a lot about like the music that impacts our daily lives we we love like when a great album comes out and you can talk about how awesome it is or how powerful it is or how it has something to say in a given moment but then there's other albums that maybe aren't that but they also like help me like get through a day mm. where they're kind of like going back to where it was when you were a kid and the reasons you listened to music back then, or you loved music back then. I think I still try to find that part of myself that still enjoys that music now. You know, something I find is that when it comes to these end of the year lists, I don't even really consider those because, Oh, well that, that's not what this is supposed to be. But then I, you know, question myself of like, gosh, did those albums have a place, you know, to be talked about and i we were just reflecting on this in our past podcast of like the past 5 years those albums that we didn't really you know, call out at the end of the year or something, but yet they're really, they're the ones that stick with you over time. And I realize I'm being really ambiguous and not doing a good job of explaining what I'm about to ask you at all. But if you understand what I'm saying, like, is is there something to be said for those albums that do provide a, a reprieve from, I guess, all the noise in our daily lives and give us that comfort that maybe we, we found and are, are familiar with um, from past times in our lives?
0: Yeah, I have... Sort of, like, two versions of the answer to this, but I when you were talking about that, I think it's not quite what you were asking. But I was thinking about ambient music and how integral that kind of is to my listening. I listen to ambient music all the time when I'm writing, and there's like bands, um, and certain artists that just I'm like, This is my this is my shout out for city noise music. Um, and I don't think it's something that comes across in my writing or I haven't gotten a chance to write about more like experimental and ambient yeah. artists in a while. So there's this band Bitchin' Bajas that I'm obsessed with and just do really pretty kind of drony celestial stuff that I probably listen to more than almost anything in my library because mm-hmm. I put yeah. it on a lot of times when I'm writing. Um, So I, there's a lot of stuff like that that I just go back to to kind of put on in the background, not as a pejorative thing for background music, but just to sort of create a vibe. And I think that yeah. tends to exist outside of the narrative of like the year. But um, and I think Juliana Barwick makes great music for that too. I have written about her a bit, but I listen to her music a lot when I'm writing or just wanting to tune out the city noise because I do live in New York and it gets loud. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I think just the other side of that, of, like, the the comfort food mm-hmm. version, like, I did um, add to my notebook the other day, like, this feels kind of dumb to write it down, but I do love the Star is Born soundtrack and yeah. <laughs> all the time, and it's, I don't even know if it's a guilty pleasure because I think everybody Loves it right now. Yeah. just like very moved by it. But um, yeah, I think that I was like contemplating buying the Stars Born soundtrack on vinyl the other day, and I didn't yeah. know if that was like deeply embarrassing to admit or if that was really cool. So I'm gonna go with really cool.
1: Yeah, it's um, pretty
0: cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like to own it. You know, but yeah, I think yeah, that's kind of my my answer this year. Um, is I think that's going to sound very much like fall 2018.
1: Yeah, forever. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up today, I am going to bring up something for uh, just to indulge myself, because as we talk about music that, you know, just covers both sides of like brilliant, artistic music, along with comfort food and setting a vibe, uh, we can't or I can't not talk about uh, the Carly Rae Jepsen. And this is a sort of an inside joke for all the people that listen to this podcast. Everybody knows how much I love Carly Rae Jepsen. She put out a new song yesterday. Um, I really like it. I have no idea what your feelings are on Carly Rae Jepsen. I didn't ask you before the interview, but I'm bringing it up here at the end. And so feel free to say nothing or say something.
0: Oh, I love her. This will probably be <laughs> a great relief to you. But like, <laughs> how could you not? She's, yeah. she's great.
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm a big fan of the new song. I, it's kind of like for me, it felt like uh, when I really like you came out. I was like, oh, okay, I get this. This is good, but it didn't tell me what emotion was going to be. And by the time that album came, it was like a a completely different thing. So I'm kind of yeah. Uh, I guess, I'm full very of the-
0: curious. I'm curious what cu- I was thinking that similar thing too. And I feel like emotion. She's got this sort of niche. Like hipster audience now, for lack of a better yeah. word, and is not really aiming towards the the big pop single. And I couldn't really tell if this was like something that she was putting out for radio or if it was mm-hmm. a like fans only kind. I think it's somewhere in between those yeah. two. But I will listen to whatever she does um um over and over again.
1: Generally. Yeah, same. Cool. Well, Lindsay, this has been a uh, fantastic conversation. I want again thank you for taking time today to come on the podcast and share all this. Um, uh, really love uh, everything you're you're doing at the at the Ringer and elsewhere. So thank you. Thank you so much. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter. Uh, You can also go to The Ringer and find all of her great content there, along with much more. If you like the podcast, uh, go to Open Your Favorite Podcast app. Go to uh, iTunes, search for It's All Dead, subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we are doing. That is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again to Lindsay Zolets, and uh, we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the It's All Dead podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then visit us at itsalldead.com for the latest music news, reviews, and much more.